Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instruction given by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Jamie McCoy. Jamie is a licensed integrative psychotherapist and a trauma coach who's worked with hundreds of clients and all kinds of trauma for over 10 years. Jamie realized that her traditional training as a psychotherapist was lacking in the profound connection between the mind and body. So she continued her studies in somatic therapies and the biology of trauma in order to gently address the root cause of nervous system dysregulation. Jamie now aims to build a bridge between the mind, body, and spirit in order to help her clients develop the resilience that's required to deal with stress without crashing into survival mode every time a trigger hits. Jamie is truly passionate about her work and feels honored each time someone invites her along for their healing journey. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Jalan. I'm happy to be here. I gave a brief introduction, but so that the audience can get to know you better, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got to who and where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think not unlike many other therapists, especially that specialize in trauma, I had an upbringing that was somewhat chaotic and not free from my fair share of traumatic experiences. And so I think as a child growing up for me, I was always very curious, like, why were certain things happening? Why are people doing what they're doing? And I think at a very young age, I was exploring those concepts and even studying psychology and just always fascinated with human behavior. And I actually thought I was going to become a writer. And that was the path that I initially set out to be on is to write stories about different characters without realizing that I was really just fascinated about real life stories and real people. And so I think for me, it was just this natural progression of just this curiosity innately of trying to really understand what was happening in my own physiology, in my own environment, and then also just passionately trying to understand people and how do we have greater connections with ourselves and each other. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, how would you say that your childhood relationships with your caregivers and um, the adults in your life impacted your mental health and understanding of trauma? Yeah, I think for for me, it was just the family dynamics that I experienced were one of there was a lot of chaos in the home. And I think when I had one parent that was a little bit more chaotic and unstable and one that was more avoidant. And so there wasn't a lot of safety for me in the environment at home. And I had a sibling that also wasn't very emotionally available either. And I think for her, we were so close in age. We both really didn't know how to handle what was happening in our home. And so I think for me, it was just um, very confusing and I often self-isolated and I often felt like there was something wrong with me. And I remember just going sometimes the little girl just hiding in my closet, listening to music and just trying to tune out. And so I didn't know it at the time, but these were coping strategies that I was developing just to handle, you know, why didn't I feel safe? But I didn't have that language for it. I just thought there's something wrong. If everyone else is telling me it's fine, but I can sense that it's not fine. And I don't feel like there's anyone mirroring that there is a sense of safety to be had. I just tuned it out. I had to shut down a lot. And that chronic shutdown is just sort of how I lived my life moving forward, where I had no idea how disconnected I was by the time I became an adult and, you know, it manifested itself in many different ways. Wow. I, I think that 
the way you just described um, being disconnected, a lot of people can relate to maybe from their childhood. I know that I, I can relate to it because I was trying to make sense of a lot of things and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. But also, I didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling. So I would, you know, disconnect as, as well just to not be stuck in that discomfort. So yeah. thank you for sharing that and, and being personal and vulnerable. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's an interesting experience as a child because we're taught that so much of it, if we have this mirror to us, that our feelings aren't really valid. Or for me, there was a lot of gaslighting going on where things that were happening, I was told weren't really happening. And so it's very, very confusing. And it's much easier to internalize those feelings and think there must be something wrong with me rather than feeling how terrifying it is that I don't have a safe primary caregiver in this household. And so kids will always turn against themselves before they're the adults around them. And that's just sort of something that we can carry with us. And we make different choices based off of that, that we don't always recognize until later, unfortunately. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, How would you define trauma? Trauma for me is, um, well, for most people, it's anything that overwhelms your nervous system's capacity to cope. So the moment we feel we can't protect or defend ourselves and we don't have enough energy to move or handle that threat that we're experiencing and we shut down, that's trauma. So trauma lives in that survival state of, I can't really move. There's nothing I can do about this. And when we shut down, that's when that trauma happens. Once we feel, we feel like we can't get to safety. We can't protect ourselves. We're overwhelmed. That's what trauma mm. is. Okay. So as a therapist, what what was your first gig and and how would you say it helped you learn about trauma? Well, my first experiences were actually my internships in college or in uh, graduate school were working with homeless people. So it was a senior center with homeless seniors. And so there were a vastly different populations of people that I worked with from different backgrounds because it was in New York City. And so people from all kinds, all walks of life that I met at that point. And uh, I think that just really opened my eyes to just like, especially because they were older adults, just their life stories and the lives that they lived and getting to know how, you know, how, how many experiences can really, um, a lot of people don't think are traumatic experiences because they kind of had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or that was their mentality. Um, but really some of these experiences were just horrifying to listen to. Um, and as well as, you know, moving on from my internships and working in addiction, that became extremely highlighted. Just the fact that uh, by the time someone gets to an addiction, there's obviously a lot of pain that's not being able to be coped with and not having resources for that. And so really trying to cope with that experience um, and knowing that the different types of people that I worked with, that I would run these groups where you would have homeless people, you would have Wall Street brokers, all these different kinds of people in the same group and didn't really matter what status you were, what gender you were. It was the same pain that you can pick up, the same physiological responses everybody was having that brought them to that substance of choice. And so it just opened my eyes a lot to see how trauma doesn't discriminate, addiction doesn't discriminate, really. It, it, it's just entirely based on the resources that you have. And if you don't have those resources, if your biology and your health's not okay, the greater chances that we're going to fall into survival mode and we might turn towards different coping mechanisms. Hmm. You started to have some some health issues in your early 20s. Yeah. Um, what what were they and how did 
the issues that you had with your health kind of put you on the path to the mind-body connection? Well, I never was particularly healthy growing up. So it wasn't like I was ever the picture perfect um, healthy child. But I think because I escaped a lot, especially when I left the home and went to college, I did a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. I didn't notice that my body was slowly wearing down probably until I started working as a therapist and in addiction and going in these treatment centers where I was trying to help other people, but my capacity was dwindling. And I'm just noticing just different things that I'm fatigued, pain, just different, um, different symptoms that would come up that didn't seem to make any sense. And I would get lots of different diagnoses as I went from doctor to doctor to doctor, but nothing really explained or helped. And all the treatments I did and all the surgeries I did, I still ended up flat on my back in bed by the time I was 29. So it, it was like I needed to basically be put on my back to really notice that I couldn't continue going on with the limited resources that I had and that there was something missing that none of these doctors had that my traditional therapist couldn't give me. And it was this missing piece of I hadn't dealt with the stored trauma in my body. And that was the loud and clear message I got when I got bedridden, basically. I think a lot of people, it would take a lot for them to put the pieces together that if you've had a traumatic childhood or just traumatic events in your life, that 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 trauma is stored in your body and that could be affecting your health. Um, so the, the next question that I want to ask is, how is the nervous system connected to our overall health so that we can kind of tie these things together? Yeah, well, something that I didn't learn until later was just the difference between living in a chronic stress state versus being in this survival mode, which is that more shutdown state. And so I think I was living off stress hormones for a really long time. And when that happens and we're in that, you know, kind of high adrenalized, high cortisol state, and that goes on for a long period of time, eventually those stress hormones can become immunosuppressive. And so our bodily functions aren't working at optimal level. It's draining the resources and our nutrients that we need to function. And so little by little, it's just sort of draining our tank to get through other things in life. And so I look at it like your stress bucket, where uh, a lot of uh, holistic health practitioners might look at, we might have a toxic burden. Like there's a popular concept of thinking like, what things have we accumulated in our, our body that are chemicals or other things that physically are impacting our cell. But stress does the same thing where we have the little traumas or the bigger experiences that are more impactful that kind of fill this bucket over time. And if we don't metabolize that stress, if we don't complete these trauma responses or feel like we have enough supportive resources to get through them, we're just storing them. And that cup is getting more and more full till it doesn't take very much to kind of overflow. And that's usually the inciting event that wakes you up. But it's been happening little by little over time. It just for me, it took a lot, a lot of knocks on the door before I opened it. <laughs> like a lot. So yeah. Um, there's a saying that the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I wonder if, if trauma has been building, if it gets to a point where there's that one last, you know, traumatic thing that may not even be that traumatic, but if your nervous system is, is shot, that is the trauma that, you know, broke the camel's back, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And it really like, it really depends on the state of health that we're in overall, the um, resources that we have and how big that threat might be before it takes us to get knocked mm. over the edge. It really, so many factors influence that because some people, two people go, go through the same event and one person, it puts them over the edge. The other person's fine. 
And it's the difference in their stress bucket, right? How much have you been storing over time? Are there any recognizable symptoms of a dysregulated nervous system? Yeah. So if we are in that chronic stress response, most of the time we'll notice more of that activation, more of that increased heart rate, that traditional symptoms of anxiety, where it just feels a little bit more irritable, angry, like our thoughts are going in a loop. Um, just agitated. It's it's much more of a high energy state and a mobilizing state where we want to do something. There's a sense of urgency, but we haven't quite crashed into that shutdown state yet. And once we get to that point of no return where we just run out of that energy in our body, that's when we go to that shutdown state where that actually feels kind of like the opposite of the high energy activation of stress, where we're feeling a little more disconnected, a little foggier, numb even, more depressed, heavy, and feeling like what's the point and just kind of helpless in that state. And we can often feel just very still and like almost sometimes like we're watching ourselves from outside of our body, that really disconnected feeling. And so a lot of the clients that I see, they tend to go back and forth between the two states. And that's where I was most of my life is sometimes I would feel that activation and that anxiety and more of the like looping thoughts in my head. And then I'd run out of steam and crash and then I would need to get something done. And so I pop back up into this high energy state. And then I couldn't handle that much longer before crash. And it's just, I call it the ping pong effect going back and Mm -hmm. forth between these two states without, with very little time in feeling regulated or calm or, or just healthy. I never felt very safe. Most of the time, it was just these two back and forth, back and forth. If if these symptoms that you mentioned, people are experiencing, but they don't know to recognize that, you know, they it could be their mental health or their nervous system needs some needs to be addressed. Can these bleed over into like physical ailments? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you think about the amount of energy it takes to just function in those kinds of states, like if you are shut down and you need to get something done, you can really feel how much energy is required to do something when you're already running on empty. And so when we're chronically pushing against that and going against what our body is telling us that need for rest, yeah, absolutely. It's going to deplete you of the energy that you need to have health. Um, and it's also going to create some issues potentially with your digestion and being able to absorb nutrients because it's shutting down your digestive tract as well. Um, we can also experience inflammatory symptoms where we have chronic pain and there are signals we're getting from our biology that something is not okay. And that creates inflammation overall in the body. We can get that in our brains as well. And so having that inflammation in the brain creates a whole host of mental health symptoms that people don't always associate with a biological foundation, but it very much is both. It's something that's happening internally and it's our emotions affect that and our internal physiology affects our emotions and our nervous system. So it's, it's very much all connected. I know for me, it was a a different concept to think that my emotions could affect my physical health or that stress could cause me to have a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I saw something on your website that you mentioned that really like drove this point home for me. And that was, um, can our cells tell the difference between an emotional or physical stressor? No. 
So any stress is still a stress to the body. And so, and I say this, even if it's a good experience, if it's like something that you're going through a big change, that's good, that can still feel overwhelming. So anything that creates a sense of overwhelm in the system, it doesn't really matter if that's a physical thing that happens or an emotional thing that happens because physiologically your nervous system is responding the same way. The brain doesn't differentiate between physical and emotional. I think that was kind of like a, a light bulb moment, an eye opener, because it 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 nails and drives home the point that if on a cellular level, our body can't tell the difference, then if we're in a, a chronic or a hyper state of arousal constantly, we you know, we really can be taking a toll on our on our on our bodies because of stress. Yeah, absolutely. And not all stress is bad. So I always like to say stress gets a bad rap. And we talk about Mm -hmm. needing to manage the stress. But really, it's just about completing our stress response and feeling like we handled something and we got back to a baseline of feeling okay. But not a lot of us get to that place where we fully metabolize these stress hormones, because oftentimes there's just one after the other, and it can feel unrelenting. And we don't necessarily have the nourishment for our body to get through it either. So we have to address the health piece as well. We have to give our body and the nutrients to the cells so that they can function. Yeah. Hmm. So let's say that like, for instance, there's been trauma that has been in someone's lineage for a long time, maybe, you know, just hard times, whether it's cultural or whether it's economic or what have you, how, how can trauma be passed down between generations and, and within the family? Yeah, well, we know epigenetic changes can occur at the cellular level while babies are being carried by their parents. And so it's, it's, it's very much, um, physical where we can experience an increase in the size of our amygdala, which is our little threat detector in our brain. If our mother experienced a lot of stress during her pregnancy and the mother before that. And so there are so many things physically that can happen to the baby before is even born this pre-verbal trauma as well when we're very young. But just in terms of events that have happened, I think also they're just behavioral changes where there are certain ways people learn to cope. And we don't exactly have the proper resources to know what's happening and we can go into that shutdown state. And so if that's the way that our family has learned to dealt with experiences as opposed to acknowledging and really supporting each other through them, then it's just being held in the body. And so a lot of families can oftentimes just sweep it under the rug. We don't talk about certain things. You just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then we're not really addressing the root cause of the issue. And people don't feel safe or the children don't feel safe to express themselves. And it's this chronic suppression of their own needs and emotions and the lack of attunement that they really need to get in order to feel safe. Uh, that creates this pattern. It just continues throughout each generation because they don't really have the skills or resources to address what's actually happened. Is it possible then that if it was necessary to dissociate or disconnect emotionally for, you know, someone's mom or grandma, could that be passed down to someone who doesn't know that they need to do it and are doing it? So can you ask that a different way, just so I make sure I'm understanding what you're asking? Is it possible for dissociation to be passed down within the family? Kind of. Or or disconnecting. Kind of. 
Um, and the way that the, the thing is, dissociating is an automatic response. It's going to happen as a self-protective mechanism if you're overwhelmed. And especially for a child, especially for a baby, their needs are not being attuned to where they're feeling physically nurtured, emotionally nurtured. Their default is going to be to shut down because it's so overwhelmingly painful to not experience that kind of attunement. It's going to automatically happen. Um, so it's not something that's necessarily learned as much as it's an automatic response from your nervous system to protect you. And so if that's what's happened throughout the family, because there's a lack of attunement through the generations, it's going to happen. So it's not exactly like it's passed down as you learn that behavior from someone else as much as it's a, a response and a reaction to not getting your needs met and not feeling that safety. It will automatically happen. It's not a conscious choice. I see. Yeah. Can generational trauma create an emotional double standard that children are held to a higher standard than their caregivers because their caregivers are not able to meet that same emotional standard? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to not having the resources or, you know, I think of my own parents and just my mother didn't know any of this stuff. And that's what I say. A lot of people can say, oh, you're always blaming your parents. And it goes back to blaming the parents. But many parents don't even realize what they're doing when they're just trying to cope themselves. They're in survival mode themselves. And so because of that, certain behaviors are going to come out. And that may look like, uh, you know, the child's needs don't cry. You know, you, you just get over it. And this kind of rushing to not deal with emotions because the parent's capacity is very small to deal with that emotional discomfort. They don't know what to do with it. It's very uncomfortable. They don't have the capacity to hold their own difficult emotions. So how could they tolerate their children's emotions? And so the child is then held to this standard that they should know better, but children can't self-regulate. And that's the problem. They require an adult to co-regulate with them. And so that's how they learn to deal with stress. So then if the parents are telling them to get over it and stuff it down, well, then that will become their default for how they deal with challenges. And so it's, it is creating a bit of a double standard there where children don't have that ability, but a lot of caregivers don't recognize that. And so they hold them to that standard of they should be able to be fine when that's just not possible. They're not as resilient without those resources. I, I remember hearing um, and seeing a lot. And even now still, like, you know, parents will say, you better not cry mm -hmm. to, their, to their children. And, and now recognizing what suppressing emotion does, I'm like, oh my goodness, that is so damaging because they're, they're training their children to suppress their emotions and disconnect. Mm-hmm. Anytime I watch anything on TV or like sometimes my husband and I will watch some reality show that's kind of silly, but I'll often see a lot of these people tell each other, the second someone cries, it's like, don't cry. Um, and even if they think they're trying to be helpful, I feel like it just shows me where their own capacity is limited, right? It's telling you their own nervous system can't tolerate the full spectrum of emotion. So they need support, right? If somebody says that, it's not about you and you're crying. It's about them not being able to tolerate how uncomfortable it feels for them to watch and witness. Wow. That's so deep because, um, I, I'm a, I'm a paramedic and oh wow. Sometimes when we respond to calls in the field, you know, the families will be emotional if, if something happened traumatic or if they lost a loved one. And we'll, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes see other family members trying to console and saying, you know, don't cry and, and this and that. But it's that's suppressing grief, mm -hmm. which I feel like is, you know, destroying the nervous system at that point. 
Yeah, that attunement that we need as children, as babies, that we need to survive is all about being there. It's not changing someone else's situation. It's saying, I'm going to be here with you no matter what you're experiencing. I'm not going to try and fix you or change it, but I'm letting you know I'm right here with you as you experience it. It's a very different thing. And hearing you say that it's, it's more so about the person not being able to hold space for them while they are feeling and expressing their emotions is just like, wow, that, that says so much about just, you know, everything I've experienced and seen so far, because I would always think when you're telling someone don't cry, you're telling them everything's going to be okay, but you're telling them I'm not okay, essentially. So please don't cry because I don't want to feel because I can't hold the space for you. That's so true. That's exactly it. It's exactly it. No. And But we can internalize that, right? We're saying, oh, I'm making it. And then we apologize. Sorry, I'm crying. Sorry, sorry. Mm, yes. And it's this thing that automatically responds. And it, we shouldn't have to feel sorry about it. It should be about, well, if someone doesn't have the capacity to be there, they should figure out how to support their own nervous system before trying to volunteer to be there for you because they're not really going to be fully available if they can't tolerate it, right? And if crying is the body's natural way of releasing energy. To me, that's like telling someone don't breathe. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's so natural. Yeah. Wow. And I think we've just lost the the concept of, of what the body is doing and how we're supposed to release that energy um, that, you know, we, we've just gotten lost. We've gotten so lost. Yeah. I often give the example, like, um, just different experiences I've had in life and knowing what I know now about what the body needs to do. Whenever I've gotten any upsetting news about something or something that was shocking or traumatic, my body will naturally sometimes start shaking and it will tremble for a very long time. And oftentimes many people will try and suppress what's happening. They'll feel uncomfortable that that's happening, but this is a natural release of that survival stress that gets kicked up when you're shocked, when you experience a trauma. And so knowing what I know now, I let those things happen and we have to leave time to recover and give space for that response to complete. But oftentimes many of us, we shove it down. We got to stop it, cut it off and keep moving. And that's where the trauma gets stored. So we want to let these things happen so it doesn't get stored. And it's a lot easier said than done, but that's what we want to learn. Yeah. That reminded me of the, the gazelle example. Yes. Um, because, and you know, I would watch Animal Planet and I would see like if an animal that was being chased and it, you know, was able to escape, they would shake. And I never, you know, put two and two together that they were releasing the energy from their nervous system being in a, you know, fight or flight. So right. when you said that you shake, um, sometimes when you, when you get news, I was just like, that was the first thing that came to mind. And if animals do it instinctively, how much more so I feel like should we know that we need to release that and not suppress it, but we're doing the exact opposite. Right. And the other interesting thing with animals, it's, it's the same goes for our freeze response when we're in survival mode and animals are in that frozen state. They stay in it and give it time until it's ready to come out of it. And then it experiences that shake off where it's releasing the stress that put them in the freeze. But when we go into the shutdown state, we criticize ourselves. There can be a lot of shame associated with it. And that judgment sort of prolongs that frozen state where we feel it shouldn't be happening. But 
animals aren't doing that. Obviously, they don't have that kind of higher thinking that we have that stops right. them. But, you know, it's just another thing to think about that we sh it's a perfectly natural biological response that freeze just needs time, just like the animal gives itself time and it naturally comes out when it's ready. And that's how we have to treat ourselves. We've been living in survival mode a really long time as well, having that compassion. Well said. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have another question for you. If someone grew up in an environment that lacked joy or happiness, what effect can that have on how the nervous system may perceive joyful moments? Yeah. So joy, joy is an interesting sensation, right? Because when we're talking about nervous system work and trauma healing, we talk about sensation and how the sensation of joy can feel very activating for a, a lot of us. And activation can often, if you've had a history of trauma, be associated with more of those stressful and traumatic experiences. It's a biological response when we are feeling threatened. Um, but joy is really having this activation. You can think of it as being blended with a safe feeling. So it's this excitement. It's an activation in the body that feels similar to anxiety, but it's anchored in safety. So the same bit physiological sensations will happen and often trigger a response that that's not okay. We can't feel those sensations. And so it's tagging that sensation as a threat. And so experiencing joy can be overwhelming for that reason, because to the, to the body, it feels exactly the same as that traumatic experience you had. So we have to learn how to slowly tolerate moments of joy in a way that the nervous system can handle. And that takes time for many of us if we didn't experience a lot of it where those sensations were often met with other experiences of abuse or other stressors that were very challenging. Wow. So it's activation is just anchored in safety. Wow. Yeah. You can think of joy as a state of being, you know, like that fight or flight state, except we're blending it with safety. It's had activation with safety that equals joy. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, this one is a, I think a question that is a lot of people will be able to relate to. Um, for some family connections can be nurturing and safe for others. It can be the source of their trauma and where trauma is enforced. Is it common to see families, pressuring individuals who've made the decision to leave or cut out a toxic relationship with someone who's repeatedly harmed them in the name of family. Yeah, I think it's unfortunately all too common that it's very misunderstood. And that's not to say that there always has to be some type of disconnection with a family member that where there might have been a history of trauma, if that person is also willing to take on some responsibility for their own healing. However, if that's not the case, Unfortunately, some of us have to extract ourselves from those dynamics so that we can heal. And not everyone's going to understand that, especially if they weren't around during that time of the trauma. So people just assume families is family no matter what. But if they weren't safe, if they're going to cause more harm, that's not a place that you want to be. So we have to think about things in terms of what do we need to feel safe and if that person in our family is willing to take responsibility for it, great, and work on that. Wonderful, but it's not often the case for a lot of us. And so unfortunately, we have to start learning how to go through the grief of not everyone's going to understand this. And I think that's something I had to go through for a long time with my experiences. I think I went through a phase and a lot of us go through this phase, which is we just want everyone to understand and just getting people, if we could just get them to understand, but kind of accepting that that's really not always going to happen. People won't understand and getting to that place where we don't need them to understand. We just have to feel safe. And that's all that matters. It's, it's a whole grieving process that I think occurs with that. 
Um, I remember hearing something about healthy boundaries where it said, if you need to get to safety, regardless of what it takes, you're the only one who needs to understand. Yes. And I thought, man, like I, it instantly like gave me like chills because that's, that's hard to do. That's really hard because I think we, if we were in a family system where, you know, the, the model was blood is thicker than water, we've been trained to put up with things to maybe even our own detriment. So to get to a point to where we maybe decide to go no contact or walk away or whatever decision we make, and then to be rooted and anchored in no one else needs to understand this but me. That could seem like it's selfish. It could seem like so many things. Um, so I just, I thought that that was so difficult to be able to get to that point, like you mentioned. It's very hard. And it's something that, you know, we, we may go on grieving indefinitely, but boundaries are really not about consequences and punishing people. It's about creating safety for yourself. And that can be a foreign concept to a lot of us who didn't get to experience what that means. And so it's a journey to learn what does safety feel like. And sometimes those boundaries remain firm and rigid and other times they become more flexible, but it's really up to you and your capacity of what you can tolerate and you get to be the one to decide that. So a lot of emotions come up around that topic and it's okay. You know, we just have to bring in the resources so we can feel more supported. Gotcha. I want to quote um, one of your posts. It said, people pleasers start out as parent pleasers. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, well, we are completely dependent on our primary caregivers to survive. And so we have to please them if we want to survive. That's that's what we feel when we're growing up. And so oftentimes we'll do whatever it takes to get that attunement because we need it to live. So when we have a, a situation where we notice that those patterns kind of permeate into our other friendships or relationships that we have as we go on, it really is rooted in this feeling of, I feel like I'm going to die if I don't get this approval because you needed that from your parents. You needed their attention, their care, or you wouldn't survive. And so that gets very deeply wired into the system as we grow older. And we don't always make that connection until later, but that's, that's sort of uh, what that means. Mm-hmm. I think that that approval that is needed from from parents for people who were in a, a difficult situation as a child, for you to say that it can feel like you're going to die if you don't get it, I think that that gives a lot of weight to just how tough those feelings can be and then how that can um, affect us later on in life as an adult if that is what we're used to doing. And if we feel that discomfort, you know, I've heard before the brain can't tell the difference between same and similar. Mm-hmm. So that can put us right in that same state of people pleasing, almost as if we're that child again. A hundred percent. And just like what you said, it's no different with the idea of this feeling that we feel like we're going to die. Any of those sensations that we experienced when we were younger that were cut off, like when we had an emotion or a need that wasn't met, or we were told we were wrong for having that emotion or need, we then learn that those emotions and needs aren't good, that they are threats and we shouldn't feel them. So anytime we feel anything vaguely familiar to those sensations and those emotions, it literally can feel like we're dying. That's why sometimes emotions feel so unbearable because to the nervous system, it's tagged that as a threat that we're not going to survive this because you didn't have any support to get through it when it first happened. Wow. I think that childhood trauma really is now getting the attention that it deserves. 
And for a long time, it was just normalized or people would think that, you know, well, yeah, I went, I went through some things, but that's just life or that's just childhood. Um, but the effects that we're seeing that, that it can have now on the body, on the nervous system, on how you show up in relationships. Uh, I mean, it, it's so important that these things are talked about and given the, the light that they need. Absolutely. I agree. I know there's a lot of talk about trauma on social media and it's become almost trendy nowadays, but I think that it's good to get an awareness out there of all the ways it can manifest because a lot of people don't always think that they had it that bad, just like you said, but really they've been in that survival mode and they figured out a way to adapt and, you know, adapting is not the same thing as thriving. So we want to be mindful of that. Traumatized children often dream of someone coming to rescue them. Mm -hmm. um, who can that person be? And how is it that it was never thought that person could possibly be who it actually is? Yeah, I feel like something that we come to realize as we open up to the possibility of what we've experienced and how it's been stored in our nervous system. And we realize that just because we didn't get that attunement back then, doesn't mean we can't be the ones to give that attunement to ourselves. Now it becomes really clear that you're not stuck as that child because you get to be the one to provide those resources that you didn't get. And you can also get help outside of yourself as well. Now you have the ability to learn and to provide what your physiology needs for support. So there's no shame in seeking out professional help if that's what you need as well. But I think for most people, we think we have less power than we do when we grow up in these experiences, but ultimately we just need to be able to show our nervous system that it's safe and supported. And there's so much we can do for ourselves to provide that. Mm. I remember when I saw that and I, I thought, wow, like you are turning into the adult that you needed to be, mm -hmm. that you needed to be in order to, to give yourself safety as a child. Like you are becoming that person. And yes. and your inner child and your the adult version of you, when their safety can mesh together and you can have healing on both levels. Yeah. And oftentimes we might need to start with a co-regulating resource the way that we would have had a parent. And that's what therapy is for. That's what having professional help is for. That's what even an animal or a pet or nature. Yeah. A lot of people can start with these co-regulating resources to help bring in a sense of what does it feel like for me to experience even 10 seconds of safety and starting from that point and getting to know what safety feels like in your body and relearning that for the first time. Uh, it's really powerful. Yeah. There's a saying, um, time heals all wounds. Do you agree or disagree with that? Not exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> once again, coming back to that safety, time feeling safe is what heals. That's what heals the nervous system. We need resources, support, safety, energy, health. All of these things are very healing, but time itself is not enough. We need to know what that safety feels like so our nervous system can shift into that place of regulation. And then ultimately it optimizes all other processes in the body and we can regain our health as well. So that's where it all comes down to that safety and support and time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as someone is starting to, to get a sense of safety in their body and if they had um, let's say a traumatic childhood and they decide to now talk to their parents about the trauma that was caused. 
Um, how can they go about that and what should the goal be? Yeah. So for anyone that wants to reach back out to their parents or engage in a discussion about these things that have happened, I always recommend building capacity in yourself first. So that's widening your own window of tolerance to be with your own discomfort, the, you know, the emotions and sensations that you weren't allowed to experience. We want to get to a place where they're not feeling so threatened so that we have enough energy to be able to have that kind of discussion where we won't necessarily shut down. And we also know that we're not doing it necessarily to change them, but it's just from coming a place of giving ourselves a voice. So I always recommend that if somebody wants to do something like that, that they work on building up that sense of safety in their own body first, building up that capacity so that they feel they could actually handle that because it doesn't take much to push us back into survival mode if we don't have that capacity. So we want to be mindful before we go and try and have any major discussion that we're going into it for the right reasons, that we're just giving ourselves that voice. We don't have any expectations and we can handle and provide the resources for ourselves that we need to feel safe after that discussion. How tough can that discussion be if someone chooses to do it? It can be incredibly tough, especially if it's not acknowledged that you're sharing your experience and it's denied or belittled or you're gaslit. It's incredibly challenging. So you have to be really mindful that those are possible outcomes that could occur. And do you have the capacity to handle that? Um, and so this is something I don't re recommend going into lightly at all. Uh, it's wonderful if they respond very supportive and they acknowledge and they apologize, but we're not always going to get that. So I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage and capacity and a lot of work on yourself before we can get to that place of feeling like it is something we can handle. And let's say someone decides to, to talk to their parents and they don't get the response that they were hoping for. Can that now turn into self-blame and guilt? It could if if there hasn't been enough healing to occur that you're feeling, you know, it's like we become the problem as opposed to what the experience was. And if we haven't disentangled that shame from the problem versus shame about who we are, if that's still there, that becomes the risk that we run if that conversation doesn't go very well. And so that's why I really say be sure you have a lot of support for yourself a lot of regulation built in your nervous system because it does have the potential to trigger and re-traumatize and uh, put you back into that survival mode if we haven't clearly made that disconnection that the shame of our experience is not shame of who we are. And sometimes if our parents are reinforcing that we're the problem, can really just hit that hot button, reopen that wound real quick. Hmm. So continuing the conversation on safety, as someone begins to heal, what are some things that they start to notice in their body as far as safety and trust? Like what, what, what do you feel as you start to feel safe if it's not something you felt before? You feel generally more connected and present and grounded. And so you're more engaged with your own body. You feel within your body. You can feel sensations that aren't threatening. So you're very uh, aware of your surroundings. You're more interested in engaging with other people because when we do feel safe, our social engagement system kicks on that part of the nervous system. So we'll want to maybe engage more with other people, feel more curious. We feel more um, just connected, very, very um, just aware, aware of things that maybe we weren't before and just aware of the sensations we feel. And it's not in it's not in the way that it is when we're feeling dysregulated where it's overwhelming, but it's in a way where we're just present to them and it doesn't have to feel harmful. 
Do you offer any programs that assist with nervous system regulation? Yeah, I have a little mini course that just goes over the beginning of learning to track your own nervous system and foundations of awareness of what each nervous system state brings and how we can build a little bit more capacity. And that's called the Nervous System 101. I also have another longer program called the Nervous System Reset. Although right now I'm not sure when I'm going to offer that again, but I am doing one-on-one work again. So I've been working one-to-one with people for the last few months and I just love getting back to just helping people individually because we're all so truly unique. And it's just amazing to be able to watch someone develop awareness that they can tolerate more than they thought and they can build this capacity. And once they have these tools, they have it forever. So it's just an amazing gift to be able to witness. How does it make you feel being the facilitator of someone going from a dysregulated nervous system to now safety and peace and and watching that transformation? I mean, it's wonderful. I think it's just a testament to how resilient we can be as humans. And it's just a reminder that, you know, every person I work with, they teach me something and they make me so, I'm just always so in awe of that transformation that can happen with just having a little bit of safety and support, what can happen with that. And and that's all it takes. And that resilience is innate in all of us. And so to get to see that is just a reminder of how beautiful it is to be human to me. And um, we're never stuck. We're not broken. (laughs) We don't have to stay stuck forever. And uh, there's nothing wrong with us. And it's just amazing to be able to witness when people really come into their own and recognize the power that they have within themselves. If you could use your platform to encourage anyone who may be struggling with uh, their big feelings or emotions or on the fence with, with talking to someone, um, what would you say to them? What advice would you give? I think, I mean, it's just to repeat myself, but that you're not broken. <laughs> I feel like that's a message that can't be shared enough that we can feel so much shame when we go through experiences that shut us down. Um, and that ultimately all of the experiences and sensations we feel, they're, they're serving a purpose. All these nervous system states that we have, even if they feel unpleasant, they're there to help you survive and how amazing it is that we learn ways to cope to get through life. I think it's so incredible the way children can get through certain situations. And so it's something to be commended and have compassion for instead of viewing that there's something wrong and we are we are broken people. And that's just so far from it. We're amazing that we can be able to get through the things that we survive. So never forget it. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, thank you for this. Thank you for your time. And um, showcasing what you do and your knowledge and expertise. Um, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this with me because uh, I was so stoked at basically looking at your content and the way you have broken down trauma and the nervous system and your programs and everything. So I'm very grateful for your time and, and that you agreed to do this. Thank you so much for having me, Jalan. It was great. If someone wants to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? I'm at my integrative therapist. I'm mostly on Instagram, but I think we have a Facebook page. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it automatically updates my posts from Instagram to Facebook. Um, and myintegrativetherapist.com is my website. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you do, for how you do it, and for who you are. Thank you so much. You too, Jalam.